0: Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Jesse McCann, and I want to welcome you to the Tactile Guitarist Podcast, the show that brings you interviews with guitarists, composers, teachers, and anyone else who can share their wisdom, advice, and stories on surviving a career in music. It's springtime in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, We just finished winter term at the university, and I have to say I'm exhausted, Uh, but I guess that's what I get for taking on this project uh, of mine on top of teaching, performing, and being a parent. Uh, But it's been really great so far, and I'm looking forward to what else is in store this year for the podcast and the things I'm presenting on the website, which you can check out at tacticalguitarist.com. And with that, I just want to say thank you again to everyone who has subscribed and downloaded the podcast. It continues to grow, and more guitarists are checking it out every day. It's just beyond exciting to see the interest in what we have going on here, So keep telling your friends and doing things like rate or review the podcast on iTunes if you listen there. Of course, if you listen on Spotify, uh, I don't think there's a way yet to uh, rate or review anything there. Uh, Anyway, your efforts can really help boost the show's visibility and help reach more guitarists out there who are working and trying to live as musicians. Okay, on with my guest. Folks, I am honored to present this latest episode featuring British composer Stephen Goss. Stephen Goss's music receives hundreds of performances worldwide each year. He has been recorded on over 80 CDs by more than a dozen record labels, including EMI, Decca, TELARC, Virgin Classics, Naxos, and Deutsche Grammophon. His output embraces multiple genres, orchestral and choral works, chamber music, and solo pieces. Goss's work is marked by a fascination with time and place, both immediate and remote, and the musical styles that evoke them. In many of his compositions, contrasting styles are juxtaposed through abrupt changes of gear. His compositional voice is shaped by his parallel career as a guitarist, that is to say as a performer, transcriber, arranger, improviser, and collaborator with other composers and performers. Not surprisingly, his music often tests the boundaries between all these activities and original composition. Several of Goss's recent projects have involved the legendary guitarist John Williams, including his guitar concerto, which Williams recorded and played on tour with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Some of the world's leading orchestras to have performed his works include the Russian National Orchestra, the China National Symphony Orchestra, the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra, the State Symphony Orchestra, New Russia, the RTE National Symphony Orchestra, the Boulder Philharmonic Orchestra, the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, and the Barcelona Symphony Orchestra. Commissions have come from guitarists like David Russell and Shu Fei Yang, including chamber works with cellist Natalie Klein and tenor Ian Bostridge. Goss has also collaborated with Andrew Lloyd Webber, Alt-J, and Avi Avital. As a guitarist, he has worked with Takamitsu, Henza, Peter Maxwell Davies, and Elliot Carter, and toured and recorded extensively with the Tetra Guitar Quartet, various other ensembles, and as a soloist. Stephen Goss is chair of composition at the University of Surrey, director of the International Guitar Research Center and a professor of guitar at the Royal Academy of Music in London. Stephen was in Portland for a three-day performance of his Albanese concerto by renowned guitarist Pablo Viegas and the Organ Symphony. I was given a unique opportunity to chat briefly with him, so we sat down at Brian Johansson's home this past week to talk a little about his accomplishments, some of his history, and some great words of wisdom to musicians. Now, because this interview was recorded in Brian Johansson's living room, you're going to hear some occasional background noise, and I think uh, even one of Brian's cats makes a statement at one point. I did my best to control that in the editing, but that's how it goes when we record on location. Anyway, it was a great discussion, and I hope you enjoy it. And now I bring you Stephen Goss. Stephen Goss, thank you for coming on to the show. Uh, This is a a last-minute kind of thing that Brian uh, helps set up, so I really appreciate you taking uh, a little bit of your time to do this.
1: Not at all. It should be fun. Yeah.
0: Um, You're on a, sounds like a a little mini-tour of the U.S. Uh, You were just recently in Seattle. Yeah, I had
1: a premiere in Seattle, a piece for saxophone and guitar, which was done by uh, Michael Paddington on guitar and Michael Brockman on soprano sax. So that was uh, last Wednesday. And now I'm here in Portland where the symphony is playing my Albaneth concerto with Pablo Villegas. And then I'm in Denver, flying to Denver tomorrow for another premiere, this time a piece for cello and guitar based on um, the painting of Clifford Still. Okay. And uh, that's going to be in the Clifford Still Museum and it's going to be an exciting event. Then after that, on to Memphis, then Nashville, then home.
0: Great, great. Uh, you and I have actually met once when we were all in denver uh, right. at the uh, the GFA uh-huh. and I remember this vividly because it was a very <laughs> unfortunate day for you I remember we were sitting oh, we were sitting with uh, Jonathan Leithwood yeah. Michael Partington and you and we yeah. all went for coffee somewhere and right the uh, the vote had just come down from yeah. from brexit <laughs> so that was my my introduction to hanging out with with you oh, and it was just a it was a it was a it was an interesting afternoon for sure, and I think we had our you know we here had our own you know struggles with uh, politics during that time but um I wanted to uh get a little sense of your background you know that you've you're very well known in the guitar community um but i I kind of want to know a little more about how you got your start mm. um you are a guitarist
1: I'm a guitarist yes
0: Great. and um how did you come to the guitar? Was that your first instrument? Uh, yeah, and, and, it was.
1: I mean, to go way back, when I was uh, seven years old, uh, I listened, like most people do, to a lot of pop music on the radio TV. And I wanted to play guitar. And my parents thought, well, this is some kind of fad. So what we will do if you save up all your pocket money uh, and you buy yourself a guitar, we'll buy your lessons. So I did. I spent a year saving up. And I saved up £12, which I guess is about $15 at the moment. Uh, bought a nylon string guitar and my parents were insistent they said well you've got to have proper classical lessons you can't do this pop music nonsense you know so i was like fine um so i started playing guitar and even when i was coming home with three or four notes to play with and little tunes to learn i i kind of assumed that what you had to do was also make your own tunes up and do your own thing so it was um and I went back and, and I had to explain to my teacher that's what I'd done. And he was very surprised. Um, and I just thought it was a natural thing to do. You've got some resources, some materials. Why not just write with them? Yeah. So, um, so I did. But I think the, the biggest uh, change came when I took up violin when I was about 11. And then got very involved in uh, the whole youth music thing. Where I grew up in Wales, there was a lot of fantastic government support for music education. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you went to school, and they said, like, which instrument do you want to learn? Right, here's the instrument. Off you go. You hire it for free, free lessons, just see how you get on. Um, And then from that, I went into the sort of most junior of orchestras and gradually worked my way up uh, to different orchestras. So I got to play lots of great orchestral repertoire on the violin. And then at 16, I won a scholarship to a music school. uh, And I was kind of studying three things simultaneously, composing, which had sort of carried on. Um, guitar and violin all kind of equal uh, and then when I got to this music school I suddenly realized the violin level was insanely high <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and it was uh ah, okay so um I decided that the guitar was definitely my first instrument yeah. and so guitar and composition was the thing I mean it um it sounds weird but I mean, guitar was always the kind of first instrument, but all my social activities to do with music was to do with the violin and orchestras. Mm. So I had stacks of friends through orchestra, my kind of main social thing, and went to lots of operas and concerts and things with this group of people. And also um, wrote a lot of music, you know, incredibly ambitious orchestral scores at the age of 13, 14. Um, You know, highly impractical. (laughs) uh, Ridiculously sort of ambitious Um, and again, you know, largely due to a group of friends I was with who were doing the same kind of thing, just in a normal state school in, in Wales. And, uh, we got very excited one day when we found that you could buy 45 stave manuscript papers. So you could have this paper that has 45 staves. Right. Okay. What can we, what instruments can we put in? How can you fill it up? How can you fill it up? How can you fill up all 45? (laughs) Yeah. So it was, um, yeah, that was the sort of start. And then, then when I went to the music school, I switched from violin to viola. So I could get into better orchestras, basically, certainly in those days, most viola players were failed violinists and uh and it was a nice nice option. so I carried on playing in orchestras really till I was twenty one twenty two but by that stage, the guitar had kind of become you know the instrument and so my first degree was in composition major with guitar, then I went to the Royal academy to do postgrad again composition and guitar, and then eventually I had a doctorate in composition,
0: okay yeah. Uh, so the guitar was kind of always there but sort of in the background?
1: Well, not really background. I mean in a way I think the way that I became a composer, uh, if you like, professionally, although I still use that word with um caution. Yeah. Is that uh I would play my own pieces in my concerts and okay. then people would hear them and then want to play them too, or want to ask me to write write pieces. Yeah. So I um and certainly all my early successes as a composer were entirely in the guitar world, yeah, um although I did have some other things done at uh, orchestral songs like it was done very early on um but I'd certainly never consider myself as a guitar composer okay uh, because uh and still now I mean sixty percent of my works uh do have a guitar in them in some way, shape, or form, but forty percent absolutely don't
0: hmm.
1: um so there's a lot of a lot of music that has no guitar, yeah yeah.
0: How um, how influential was music, and what kinds of music were you listening to at an early age?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, people looking at my music now might assume that I've always been very into all kinds of popular music and, and jazz. But as a teenager, I was completely into classical music huh. in a very sort of uh, nerdy way, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bartok, Stravinsky. When I was, I sort of came across them when I was thirteen, fourteen. And uh, that was like a whole new world. Yeah. And I remember when I wrote one of my impossibly stupid orchestral pieces, I entered it for a, a local composition competition, where the winner would uh, have their piece played by the youth orchestra of the area. And uh, of course I didn't win, but um, the person organizing the competitions sort of thought it would be really fun for me to meet someone, uh, meet the winner. So actually, they, they organized it so the winner came around to my house to talk to me about composing. Yeah. Uh, that was amazing because in, in sort of South Wales, I didn't really know any professional composers or people actually did it for a living. And, you know, I sat down with this guy and I was, I guess, I suppose, 14 or 15. And he said, uh, you should listen to Messiaen's Trianglilla Symphony. It's full of these amazing colors, all these incredible things. So I was incredibly lucky to be exposed to all this music at a very young age. Yeah. You know, it was purely by accident, purely by playing it in orchestras and by sort of meeting people and following a particular path. So there was this kind of uh, support network there that was, was very um, strong. And of course, looking back, it seems amazing, but at the time it just seemed like what everyone did. Yeah. Um, classical music seemed to be a part of everyone's education and culture. Everyone was attempting to get into the youth orchestras and the choirs. It was very much a uh, part of everyone's everyday culture.
0: Was it something you at an early age thought this is what I want to do with my life or or you know were there other other ambitions about you know you know when you you have parent support did they think well you need to have a different career path or something like that
1: no it's um no i never never considered doing anything else other than writing music absolutely and playing guitar or playing playing music playing and writing music yeah. um it never occurred to me that I would ever do anything else, uh, and I don't think I could have done really. Yeah. Um, certainly not to any level of competency. Um, I was uh, I was not particularly strong academically. I don't think. I mean, yes, I've got lots of qualifications, and on paper it looks looks great. But actually, uh, I was a very l- reluctant. Um, uh, kind of scholar at school, mainly because I was doing music the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when I went to, to university or college, um, my vision of what I should be doing didn't really match the course they were offering me. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I tended to sort of make my own way, my own path, yeah. um, and sort of follow my interests and my passions rather than what I was told to.
0: Did that Was that rooted in you from, from the very start, that kind of... Uh, in, your own vision independently? I think
1: so. I mean, it's, div- it's very easy to um, uh, make all kinds of uh, conclusions and um, join all the dots when you look back in retrospect. Sure. You know, I remember one, as a story about Dylan Thomas, you know, when people would talk about him at school, and they'd say, oh, yes, it was obviously he was always going to be a, a writer, you know, so it was yeah. kind of... But actually, you know, Dylan Thomas said that's, that's nonsense. There were lots of other people far more talented and brighter and working harder than he was. Yeah. It's just that, you know, he sort of emerged later. But um I don't know. I mean it's it's uh it's a very strange thing to do is to write music. Um because it takes an awfully long time, it's very hard to do and you don't really get much money for it. <laughs> right. Uh, so it's a kind of it's uh you've got to be sort of slightly possessed mm. or obsessed in order to sort of want to want to keep doing it.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting point because so much of uh, what I tend to talk about and uh, communicate with some of the people who have uh, actually shared their stories with me, um, even like through we have a Facebook group and things like that and um, other guitarists, is the, um, this sense of, uh, uh, of drive and con- commitment to their craft or their art, mm. uh, despite some of the you know some of the financial woes that may come with it especially in the beginning um, yeah, absolutely. and there's a there's a tendency i think for younger guitarists to uh at least in the, in my experience assume that there's just this one thing they're going to be able to do mm-hmm. uh, and or you know if, for instance being a concert guitarist mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and the the reality is, is there's is so much more involved in or included in ones uh, career i think um how have you made that work for you because you said you know composing isn't necessarily the most lucrative no, it's business not. to be in but you know there are ways to thrive and continue to exist as a composer what has worked for you
1: yeah well i think bloody mindedness and um <laughs> you know i think people often talk about uh talent or aptitude ability and of course you know, to some extent, these things are important. Certainly aptitude, yeah. if you have an aptitude for something. But the things that really make the difference are, are focus and drive uh, and passion. And you get good at something because you work at it. Mm-hmm. That's it. You know, the more you do, uh, the better you get. I mean, obviously, it's got to be guided in some way. Uh, there needs to be good teaching. And I've been very lucky throughout my guitar and composition life to have people who've been positive influences uh in composing it's very easy to have negative influences yeah you know there are some some teachers who uh push people in a particular way it doesn't really suit them and also you know i've always had pushback i've always wanted to do things my way mm-hmm. and will not be sort of led down a particular. i've never been one who wanted to um necessarily do the right thing i wanted to do my thing
0: you ever find you have to defend yourself in that yeah. way for that
1: yes of course yeah to colleagues
0: Um, or just to
1: to everyone but i mean i think you know to go back to your your main main question i mean the toughest part about being a musician is sort of when from the moment you leave all form of education um for the next five or six years that is the absolutely horrendous critical time yeah um especially when there are pressures around you because you have friends who aren't doing music and who've got jobs and Mortgages and yeah. families and uh and you see this kind of um you see what you're doing, and you look at the way the world works and the way life works, and there's a kind of incompatibility right. moment um and so you know people get through this, but it lasts a long time and it and it takes you know people you know people talk to me now and say, oh, you know you're incredibly successful, successful, everyone plays your music uh but i'm fifty five years old. You know, I've become an overnight success, and it's taken 40 years. <laughs> right. uh, and in, in, until very recently, you know, I suppose if you go back 15 years ago, um, and I've been working, well, I've been 40, been working my ass off for years, yeah. and probably not got very far, really, in real terms. Um, it's a very, very gradual process, and it's, I think it's easy for people to, to look at people like me and imagine we've always been in this position. Yeah. Whereas, in fact, you know, we're still, still part of that journey. And the early part of that journey is incredibly tough. Um, And what's really difficult in that time is to have self-belief because uh, you look around you and, you know, the world in which we live is so dominated by money, capital, wealth, and success is almost equated with how much money you have, which is the most ludicrous thing imaginable. You know, it's totally absurd. But it's just the way the society works around us. Oh, they've got a bigger house than me. Oh, they've got a mortgage. Oh, shit. You know? yeah. um, and of course what happens is that there are ways you get this money by doing the things you don't particularly want to do. Um, so then obviously there is a balance between the time you spend um, in order to make money and the time you spend in order to be happy in your work. Uh, and the idea being that eventually you're making money for the stuff that makes you happy that's the ideal situation and that and that is not impossible that is something that can happen and often often what happens also is actually the spin-offs of being good at something um, can lead to you know making money like teaching on courses or teaching people in particular situations so there's a kind of uh, indirect spin-off yeah. you know some of the greatest players are in very high demand for teaching and they can Charge a lot for it. They enjoy it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think um, you know the reality is that you have to you have to kind of be really careful about how much money earning work you take on. Yeah, uh, that is the crucial thing. And there's a kind of everyone is slightly different. But if you find yourself doing forty hours teaching a week in your twenties, it's all over. <laughs> you can forget it. Yeah. You know. Um, I think the most important thing when you're starting out is to work out where your most productive time is. Is it in the morning? Is it in the evening? And totally ring fence that for your project yeah. and make the other stuff fit in around it. You know, if you find that you can work on whether it's your guitar playing and you're composing from 8 in the morning till lunchtime and then the rest of the afternoon you're teaching or doing other things or you can have two completely clear days and you're doing stuff on other days so that you kind of um, really ring fence this time very carefully and don't allow... The kind of administrative things of your life to take that prime time. Yeah, because it's very easy to do just to sort of you know do your washing, your shopping, your admin, and your teaching, and then like the week's gone. It's just gone. It's yeah. just gone, and it's uh, and it's very very hard to. Do. I'm sitting here like I'm some kind of uh, time management guru, but I'm absolutely shockingly bad at it. Yeah, <laughs> like everyone is, and it's uh, it's very very hard. And the only reason I ever get any piece finished is because. There's a deadline. If I don't finish by the deadline, I'm in deep trouble. <laughs> you know, if there was no deadline, there would be no music. Yeah. Simple as that. <laughs> um, and the same as thinking when you're playing, you know, if you have to learn a piece for a certain event, that's what you do.
0: Yeah. There's that pressure there. There's
1: that pressure there. And you need that pressure. Yeah. You know, because um, otherwise, you know, otherwise there's no... It's like you need your, your pressure to do your tax return. Right. Right. You know. <laughs> If someone said to you, you could have another three months to do text return, <laughs> yeah. you would you would take two months and three weeks doing nothing.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
1: <laughs> you know, and so uh, having having a lot of deadlines is a, is a good thing.
0: Yeah. So do you, it, you essentially work that way? I mean, with your compositions, or do you ever find yourself composing pieces that are not commissioned where you're...
1: No, never. I mean, not for a long, long time. But the, the thing is, I mean, I'm very fortunate. I have a lot of music to write. And uh, a lot of deadlines. And at, the, at this partic- particularly precise moment, I've got far too much on. Um, I always imagine I'm going to, next year's going to be quieter. Oh. I'm going to be more sensible, <laughs> you know. Um, but that never really happens. Yeah, someone asked me once, would I compose if I didn't didn't have any commissions or deadlines? And I probably wouldn't for a while. Uh-huh. I'd probably just stop and see what, see what that did. I would probably go back to reading books, listening to music, thinking, taking a kind of... Um, Recharge my batteries because I think you know one of the dangers of composing is you, you really don't want to repeat yourself, you really mm. want to try and have each piece different. And it gets harder because obviously, the more things you've done, that means the space for the things that you haven't done is smaller, right? It's much easier to do that kind of thing right. that you've done before. So, um, I think you know, if there wasn't the deadline, I would certainly stop while I'd spend more time, you know, doing
0: the million projects that I've shelved. Yeah, um, you know, sort out the house a bit and uh... <laughs> right. <laughs> so does it feel, in some sense, like an obligation to you? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, you obviously have the obligation to do the commissions, but but composing is it, it feel burdensome in some way?
1: No, it's no, no. It's my job. It's, yeah. uh, and um, no, it's. I mean, everything has to be deadline driven. Yeah. Absolutely everything. You know, playing. Uh, you know, Pablo Vegas, who's playing the concerto this week. Uh, he knew the first performance was two days ago, mm-hmm. and so he will be learning that piece towards that right. deadline. Uh, it's not burdensome. I mean, you you have to have a deadline. It's just it's exciting. It's exhilarating. Sure, um, you know, no, it's a good thing. No, it's not burdensome. Writing music is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah. Although the the best thing about it is is actually working with other people. Mm-hmm. It's having the ideas at the beginning, talking about it with people, working with them as you're drafting it and working on it and then polishing at the
0: end so is that how you you essentially work is is especially i guess we could be specific with guitar mm. um you know you've you've worked with some pretty heavy hitters uh heavyweights out there mm. uh, zoran and shuffey um uh you've you've collaborated or is it a collaboration where you're you're getting feedback from them or or How's it working? I, I interviewed Shufay uh, last year, and we spoke a little bit about her, uh, her work with you. But I just wanted to know from your perspective, mm. um, how does it work?
1: Well, it, it, it's completely different uh, from person to person. Mm. Um, when I worked with John Williams, he was you know, really interested in the very beginning of the process describing what the piece would be like, or so chat chatting before any of it's written, and then just leaves me to it, and then would rather me present the whole thing kind of finished, and then he makes some suggestions and very sheepishly say, "Well, maybe you know you've put a fourth fourth finger here. Maybe I could use third, or maybe this could be a harmonic." <laughs> so he was um, uh, very, uh, I suppose, respectful of the of what's written. Yeah. Um, but you know, when you press him, he he will say what he likes and what he doesn't like. Okay. When I worked with David Russell for the first time, I said to him, "I said, look, you know, I want real proper feedback here." I don't want you to sort of just say oh, it's all great and then play the piece once and forget about it. So with him, you know, he would send me videos of drafts with comments. Huh. You know, so he'd learn the piece, send the video, and have some comments about it. You know, sometimes things like I really love this section, can it be extended? Don't like this bit so much. You know, can't really make these chords work. How can we do this this effect? So you know, with him, it was a collaboration via email and via. Um, mp3 files and, and little video files yeah um interestingly when I came to work with him again on the second time on Cantigas of Santiago because we'd had that first process I knew exactly what he'd like what he you know what how it would work sure um you know working with Zoran it's very interesting the piece I wrote for him was based on films and we talked a lot about films and directors and which things they should be based on and what the pieces should be like um and, you know, what's great about all these, these players is that they bring their own stuff to the piece. Right. So, you know, there's the, a, a really peculiar thing, and I best must be careful not to get onto this because it's sidetracking slightly, but there's, there's an imagination that people have is that when they see a composer and performer working together, they imagine somehow the performer is playing the piece authentically because they're working with the composer. Yeah. But also there's this suggestion that's the only way to play it. Right. Uh, which is far from true. You know, uh, you have very different players like Zoran and David Russell and Shufei. Yeah. And, you know, I write very different pieces for each of them that kind of suit their playing more. But then if each of them were then to play another piece of mine, it doesn't necessarily mean that Zoran would have to play the piece of wrote for David like David plays it. Yeah, He would play it like Zoran plays it. Yeah, yeah. And it would be almost a different piece. And from my perspective, that's very exciting. And interesting and you know and I think um, one thing I'm thinking about a lot at the moment is the way that Bream plays the Bream repertoire because actually his recording of Nocturnal has almost nothing to do with Britain you know it has a lot to do with Bream has very little to do with Britain what it has to do with which was Bream's amazing contribution is that you know he would play this 17 minute piece in all concerts to all audiences so I had to play it in such a way that could keep people gripped in the sixties right for a modern piece, brand new modern piece for all that time. Yeah. And so therefore he will do things in his interpretation, which are aimed at that kind of direct visceral communication with an audience. So they don't get bored. Yeah. Whereas if you follow what's written on the score, it's a very, very different piece. It's much more in line with Britain's style. Mm -hmm. So somehow, so this is not a criticism of Bremer at all, because what Bream did was incredible. It's just a criticism of all of us since, who imagine that because he did it that way, that somehow is about playing Britain.
0: Right. And that's how you're supposed to do it. Uh,
1: which yeah. it certainly ain't. Right. Right. You know. And I think that the same is true with working with, with players, because what players bring is a kind of, uh, you know, an awful lot. They bring an awful lot to the piece. And that's really important for every composer to have a a performer come along and actually take things to a different level to show things about the piece that were not there before. One thing about working with Shufei is that I would write in lots of details into the music. And then some players literally just play what's on the score. They see what's there, they play it, that's it. But they kind of miss the music altogether. They kind of don't really get the essence of what's going on. on the musical side of things, where Shufay is the opposite. She'll often ignore the dynamics and things on the page because she'll try to get at the music another way. And then when she does, and you listen to what she does, you think, oh, actually, yeah, that's good. Mm. (laughs) And sometimes I'll do things like change dynamics and uh, tempi and all sorts of things because she'll come up with some uh, ideas I had not thought of that actually work really well. And performers know how stuff works on stage. You know, when I was doing a lot of performing with the quartet, you have that real sense of what works and what doesn't work in real time on stage. Right. And players are the ones who have to actually go up there and put their necks on the line. Yeah. You know, you could be the composer sitting in the audience going, "Ooh, actually, you know, that could be a bit louder here." And that's, um, but you know, we owe so much to performers because they bring the stuff to life, right? And they make it very uh, kind of exciting for an audience.
0: Yeah. When, uh, when did the things start to pick up for you in terms of these, uh, you know, these guitarists coming to you and commissioning works?
1: It's difficult. I mean, I've, you know, this is, um, is was there a particular point, but it's a bit like water wearing away a stone. Mm. It's just very, very gradual process. There was one point where I suddenly turned around and I thought, oh my God, I'm actually working with all these amazing people and this is great. Yeah. And it's, but it's, it's so gradual, um... One of the things I think is incredibly important for any guitarist or composer is to just know people, meet people, chat to people, know who they are, get your face around. I mean, I think the best thing about competitions is not the opportunities you get through winning, but it's a chance to be part of a peer group that's all the best players around at the moment. So you enter a big competition like Pitaluga or GFA and you have, you know, the people around you show you where the level is you know you get to meet them you get to know them you get to work with them you get to learn from them I mean that's uh that's an incredible experience and I think from yeah so from my point of view thinking back it's it's very difficult to chart it because in in, for for many years my composing thing was almost separate from my performing thing so there was uh, a composing I suppose career going on writing music for Pianists, chamber ensembles, orchestras, choirs, whatever, and then of course the overlap with the guitar and playing my own stuff, and then um, you no, know, of course, of course, people ask you to write music, and obviously you write it for free early on. That's what you have to do. <laughs> yeah. it's uh, you know, even when you do write it for money, it's never, never very much money. I mean, what I do now is I sort of, um, in order to come up with a commission fee, I'll, I'll charge a daily rate. Um, work out how long it'll take to write the piece, roughly. I work out a daily rate and then get to a a sum. Mm. I mean if you come up with a sum straight away people say, Oh my god, that's ridiculous, I can't afford that. And then you say, well actually it's it's two hundred dollars a day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't be able to get a plumber or electrician for that. No. <laughs> so no. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um so uh, yeah, where's this going? Oh yeah, so yeah, so gradually so sort of doing it, but the, the you know the joy comes from uh, from hearing a performance of your music yeah. that sounds great yeah. that someone has really you know and they treat your music like they're treating how they might play their Bach or their Schubert or their or their Brahms. So it's not like a new music thing where they quickly cobble it together, give one performance, and forget about it. Right. It's what's really exciting is when you realise that people are playing the piece multiple times mm-hmm. and they they've played it maybe. Between ten and twenty times, and it's got to a stage where it's great. Yeah, you know, and then that continues. I mean, I don't know how many times David Russell's played Cantigas of Santiago, but it's a lot over a sort of five-year period, a uh, couple of hundred times certainly. Yeah, um, and you know, and when when you when you hear a piece of yours that's so ingrained in someone's playing and so um, wonderful, that's incredibly exciting, and that is the sort of uh, that's always the driving force, you know, sort of working with people and creating this project that sounds great, yeah. you know, and which is largely to do with uh, what they add as performers. Right. You know, I, I never think of um, a piece of music as having a kind of urtext or a sort of idealized form in my head. It's something that grows and certainly grows once the first draft has been done, once you're collaborating with people yeah. and moves forward towards the final version rather than away from it. Yeah you know, you have this sort of image that the composer has a sort of uh, urtext, and then everything else is compromise. You know, oh yeah, this is the piece, this is the brilliant piece, and oh dear we can't make it quite work on the guitar, we'll try these tricks and make it happen. But to me it's exactly the opposite, is that the sort of um, first draft is a sort of blueprint, and then okay, let's now about details. I mean some people I work with, there's a pianist I work with a lot called Graham Kasky, who comes up with a lot of musical ideas, you know, there was a concerto I wrote for him, uh, another great collaborative, my, collaborator of mine, Thomas Carroll, a cellist. And the concerto was for violin, cello, piano, sax, double bass, and orchestra. And the idea was that we took sort of other music, we transformed it in some way, and put it out in this, this concerto. So some of them were quite fun. For example, we did the sort of very romantic slow movement of the Rachmaninoff cello sonata as a kind of uh, 1920s stomp. You know, we did the uh, last movement of uh, Beethoven um, passionata sonata as a as a tango and you know, all this kind of fun stuff. But it was Graham who came up with all the material. Ah. And I was basically just there curating it, orchestrating it, making it into a piece. Huh. So I love I love this stuff. And then when I work with people like Jonathan Leithwood on a piece called Oxen of the Sun, you know, again, a lot of collaboration, a lot of sitting down, me getting him to improvise, asking him to do certain things. Yeah. Uh, and more often than not, you know, the performer's name should be up there alongside mine um, in, the, uh, in the in the credits. But often when I ask people, they said, oh, no, 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 just put edited by, or just put... There seems to be a sort of a fear of this. But I think more and more, you know, music is something that's written by more than one person. It requires more than one person to write it. Yeah, uh, And so that's, that's what I find particularly exciting is collaborating with different musicians who can bring something new yeah into the into the space
0: I have students who um, I find myself repeating a lot that you know they they play a piece and uh, say that was good uh, how how are you where does this interpretation come from and they say, well I heard so and so play it this way and that's you know what, do you think that's what you're supposed to do and you know there's this a lot of a lot of these students have this idea like you were saying where you know, because this piece was written for this person, yeah. the, the way they play it is the way you're supposed to play it. And
1: well, that's also perpetuated by the people themselves. Mm. I mean, Segovia famously, yeah. you know, when he taught, he's like, you use my edition, you use my fingering. Low bit, how do you do anything else? And Bream was the same when he was teaching, but, you know, to a large extent, this is because these are really famous international people who are on show, you know, and any chink in the armour is not good for PR. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, your best bet is basically to say, yes, this is what I do, you yeah. should do the same. Yeah. You know, it, especially in that culture, there wasn't really room for sort of questioning.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, that kind of came later. Um, so, I, you know, I don't, don't blame people for playing Bream repertoire like Bream, but it's probably just time to, to question that. But yeah, interpretations are a very important sort of aspect. Of performing. And I think, you know, the players who really get on are the ones who are slightly uh, left of field left field and come up with something which is devastatingly interesting and original. Uh, a Russian cellist friend of mine sent me a video clip the other day of Mikhail Pletnev playing the opening the Tchaikovsky B flat minor piano concerto. You know, and famously everyone plays these huge bang, bang, <laughs> bang chords, bang, 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 well the strings play the, the melody in unison. But you know, Pletneff just goes. Hmm. Just very just, you know, I'm accompanying here are these nice spread chords. And suddenly you think, oh, actually, maybe another way is possible. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and this 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 is where I think many players who are well, the ones we've already spoken about, I mean there are many more too. Uh players like, well, Tilman Hofstock, Soran Dukic, um, Lukas these are people who you know, really look at the music and really think about what the music has potentially, yeah. what could be done with it. So you're, you're you're sort of thinking in a sort of future conditional tense. What could I do with this, rather than a kind of past tense? So let's let's what what do other people do? Right, I'll do that. Yeah. You know, so you're almost like taking your interpretation off the shelf. I you know, or even mixing interpretations, saying I like a bit of what this person does, a bit of what that person does. Right. And it's a big danger, I mean, you know, we live in a recording culture, and so people do play play this stuff, and um, and it's also, it's ingrained in people of my generation on juries of competitions too. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, Walton Bagatelles, Bream doesn't play them uh, anywhere close to any of the metronome markings. Right. Um, or Moose characters, you know, you've got the orchestral version of it, which is quite different. Um... But again, it's not really a question of right or wrong. I think it's just a question that you know, if players want to make a mark, they can. They do it by doing by playing stuff that's exciting. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, it's you know, the competition culture is difficult because the competition culture suggests correctness and the right way of doing things. And actually, the people who are kind of a bit left field in competitions don't win because you know, three of the jury will have them first, and three yeah. of the jury will have them fourth. Yeah, you know. And the person who wins, everyone puts second, you know, so it, there's, there's a sort of um, risk and also examinations, you know, you can't be these kind of quirky players, but yeah, getting to the real world, I mean, some of the most interesting players, I mean, take a couple of Russians like Dmitry Ilyanov or Artyom Dervyoid, and they, sure. they are real artists. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they do some surprising things and they do things that not everyone will like, but you're you're gonna be completely riveted yeah. from beginning to end. Yeah. You are not gonna be bored. Yeah. You know, and there's far too much boring playing.
0: That's <laughs> true. Uh you wrote a piece for GFA yeah. uh, a few years ago, and it was a piece that like it it, it couldn't be performed the same way. That's right. Yeah. One, twice, right? I mean it was yeah. set up that way. I yeah. mean I thought that was a, a really Cool thing that you, you know, goes right to what you're talking about. There's just no, there's no script here in terms of this, this has to be this way all the way to the yeah. end. Um, and you know, how many people played that, that, that week? You know, <laughs> you know I, I think, uh, I don't know if Brian was actually a judge during that week, but yeah. there was a, I could imagine a fair amount of interpretations, but that was precisely what you wanted, wasn't it?
1: Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, that, that piece was fun. So, um, it's called Labyrinth. Yeah. And, and so it had um, uh, 13 sections. The first and last were fixed, but the other 11 could go in any order. So through um, factorials, it meant there were sort of like something like 11 million possible orderings. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, it was set up in such a way also that there was no solution to the puzzle, there was no perfect ordering. Yeah. Um, some orderings would bring in advantages, some disadvantages. Uh, and then the other thing is that they had to actually, yeah, had to play it differently every time they played it. So you mm-hmm. couldn't find your order and then stick to it; you had to play it differently. They even had some some poor person on the GFA checking in the final <laughs> round that they were playing a different order to what they played in the in the first round. Really? Yeah, I feel very sorry for that person. Oh
0: jeez. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but then uh, Javier, uh, Javier Javier Jara Javier Jara, yeah, who won it? Um, he got really into it, and he. Uh, not only memorized it, but would improvise the order. Which is crazy. Yeah, I mean, was, you, know, and, you know, he played it a lot. He had to play it around the whole tour. And at the beginning of the tour, he said, you know, do I really have to play it differently in every venue? I said...
0: <laughs> if you I said, want to. <laughs> <laughs> right. I said,
1: yeah, you have to. It's, it's what it said. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he did, and he said what was great about improvising is that sometimes he would play one of the variations twice, sometimes he'd miss one out. Yeah. But actually, that's all part of the... all part of the fun. Right, right. That's
0: cool. um, yeah, um, you uh, you teach in Surrey, is that right? That's right. Yeah, and you have a, a, a symposium. I think it's called the uh, the International Guitar Research. Is it a symposium? Oh, it's the Center.
1: Yeah, International um, Guitar Research. Yes. Can you talk so, a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to making money as a composer, um, <laughs> I had an academic job for many many years. Uh, I taught full time at the Yehudi Menuhin School first in the nineties while trying. Well, doing my finishing my doctorate and playing concerts, and then got an academic job, so a full-time academic job. So all this is done against that background. Um, I've more recently gone part-time because there, there's just too many other things going on. But as part of what I sorry, I teach composition, nothing to do with guitar. Okay. Um, but as time went on, so I was attracting more and more doctoral students who were guitar-based composers or guitar-based research subjects. And so in 2014, along with my colleague, Milton Murmokides, we started the International Guitar Research Center. So the idea being to have a, a sort of hub for guitar research around the place. So um, we got John Williams in as our honorary president. And we had a launch event in 2014, uh, which was about three days of papers and recitals and stuff. Then we had a big big event in 2016, which is about a week long, 124 different speakers. Um, since then, we've, kind of, we've, we've moved to Hong Kong a bit because we've got a good relationship with the Hong Kong Academy for Performing Arts mm. and also sort of Altamira Guitar Foundation. So last summer and this coming summer, we're having big conferences in, in Hong Kong. Um, but really, the, and then since, since it's been set up, there have been other sort of satellite events that have started going. So for example, last month, I was in Dublin for the Dublin Guitar Symposium, which was kind of modelled... On the IGRC um, okay. well, model, International Guitar Research Center model. So, the, so what what we're trying to do is just act as a catalyst for guitar research because the amount of research that's going on in guitar is huge. It's mushrooming the whole time. It's increasing exponentially, uh, and there are some great scholars involved. Yeah, and so all our idea was really just to connect all these people, get them get them talking together, because uh, you know you have things like some lectures at GFA and there are some little sort of events with guitarists talking, but we thought, well, wouldn't it be good to get in, you know, a lot of people and also from all different styles of guitar. So we're not limited to classical. There's, you know, jazz, electric, folk, anything. Oh, okay. Basically, uh, mandolin, um, and, uh, ukulele. Yeah. Uh, and so I know it's all aspects of research that so could be to do with acoustics Guitar making could be to do with historical things, could be to do with anything. So, the guitar is just a kind of broad label that brings it all together.
0: So, it acts as a way of, of promoting research, but it does, does it also serve as a, a kind of hub for the, the research that's done? Is it collected and, and maintained yeah. somewhere, or is it? No. Um,
1: <laughs> what it is, it acts as a hub in as much as we now have a guitar research community that's in contact with each yeah, other. Yeah, like a network, entire, yeah. And like, a, like a big network. And that's the kind of main. We also have an archive. We were given um, Maurice Summerfield who started, you know, who was a guitar businessman in the UK. Um, he was the one who started Classical Guitar Magazine way back when. Yeah. And he has the most incredible collection of guitar stuff. Yeah. You know, periodicals, books, um, pictures, uh, paintings, photographs, manuscripts, um, newspaper cuttings. Uh, and so... We, he um, donated his collection to our, our library, so we have an archive there, which guitars researchers can come and use. Cool. Um, yeah, so we have a lot of doctoral students who are guitar-based. Yeah. So in, in a sense, the center is this kind of community of doctoral students locally, and then this wider community, this wider network of researchers everywhere. We have strong connections in well, Hong Kong, China, but also in Australia, yeah. in Latin America, and of course with GFA in North America. And also with the International Guitar Research Archive at uh, California State, Northridge.
0: Okay. Um, you pick, uh, uh, I noticed that the one in Hong Kong coming up in July, there's a theme around improvisation. That's right, yeah. So how does this, has every one of these had a, a particular theme for the for research or?
1: Not really. I mean, um, a couple of them have. We, we've had sort of smaller, you know, one-day events and things that have, have centred around a particular thing. But the thing with improvisation is we, find, we found last year that more and more people were talking about it mm. um, and talking about the kind of creative angle at different times. And there's the three of us, well, so there's, there's a keynote, which is going to be myself, Jonathan Leithwood, and Stanley Yates talking about improvisation in different eras and different approaches. Uh, and Milton Murmikides, uh who is basically a, a jazz guitarist come, electronic composer come. Um, he'll be talking about aspects of it in, in other stuff. Last year he did a great paper about improvisation and rhythm in Roland Dion's work. Okay. Which was Yeah. So it it's um so really it's about getting people together. Yeah. And, and sharing ideas and it's been everyone finds it very enriching to hear what other people are working on and to meet them and to Sure. You know, and, and half the fun is to um is to go out for a drink and, and talk these things over and yeah. you know.
0: It's uh that's where the research... Real research is real, Absolutely. Done. <laughs> well, that's, that's where the connections are way. Yeah.
1: And, you know, people have got together and done projects together and made connections. So exactly. You know, it's yeah. a good thing.
0: Uh, to go back to a... Uh, just briefly to a topic about uh, support and networks, like you're saying. Mm. Uh, you, you said you grew up in, a, in an area where you were fortunate enough to have uh, support for the arts and music. Mm. You know, there's a lot of students... Um, Partic- particularly here in the states, who mm. grow up in areas where there's just almost nothing like yeah. that, yeah. and yet they have ambitions, they have talent. Um, do you have students on your own, or do you you have words of wisdom for students and young people who may, you know, not be in in the best of situations where whether it's familial support or community support, what kinds of things could they do to? Um, mm.
1: No, that's a that's a very good question, and I think you know. As as I said before, I was very fortunate. But that was a long you know, a long time ago. We're talking sure. about nineteen seventies. Uh and in the UK the situation is nowhere near as good now as it was. Oh really? <laughs> oh yeah. it's really really terrible. So there are lots of people in the UK and elsewhere in Europe in a similar situation. Mm. That kind of um style. But I think, you know, there are advantages in the internet and there are certainly people can feel part of a community sort of online mm-hmm. either through actually <laughs> even through things like listening to podcasts or being aware of other things, but attending some kind of event somewhere that where they'll meet people. So something like a GFA summit, you know, or an ensemble thing or a mm. camp or something where other guitarists will be in order. Cause once you meet them, um, I mean, my son is, is a cellist. He's 14 and he plays in a uh, national children's orchestra mm-hmm. you know, for the whole of the UK. And, as a result of that, you know, you go on these courses, you meet these people, you spend intense time with them for a week, 10 days. But then when you go away, you're in constant contact on, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, um, WhatsApp, uh, and they have kind of these groups running. And so there's this idea that you kind of build a community where, you know, you meet people, but you're not necessarily around them all the time. You might only be with them a few days. So if there's any opportunity to, to go to some event where you'll find like-minded people... yeah. Um, you'll come back enriched and not feel so isolated.
0: Yeah. Where can uh, where can people learn more about you? Learn more about me. Um, and if they want to, you know, contact you or or you know, you're, you're taking commissions still or that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I, I have a. I'm very easy to Google. Luckily, I have a name that's not too common. Um, <laughs> yeah. So my website is stephengoss.net, and that has a lot of information about stuff and okay. links and. Um, and so, on, and you can contact me directly through that website, or through University of Surrey, where I, or the Royal Academy of Music, where I teach. Okay. Um, you know, you go to their websites; they've got email addresses for me. Yeah. And I, they all come into the same inbox.
0: And the research uh, symposium—is this uh, something anyone can attend, or is it just strictly for people who submit?
1: No, papers? anyone can attend it. I mean, it, you know, there are certainly um, people who aren't are or sort of non-active, not giving papers. Yeah, and most people who are there are giving papers. Yeah, um, but no, I mean the one in Hong Kong this summer is actually part of two other events happening simultaneously. So there's the um, I have to get the names exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Altamira um, International Guitar Symposium, and that and that's got the word symposium in it, but it's actually a based like like a guitar festival. So it has concerts every night, okay, uh, competition, all that kind of stuff. There's also a guitar forum taking place, which is more academic but that's organized by the hong kong Academy of performing arts so that's got various people talking about particularly 19th century music okay. clive brown's going to be there this year and various other sort of high level luminaries and then our event is a conference which sort of takes place they all take place simultaneously just to add to the fun so people who are there can go to one or the other oh, or, all
0: right
1: or, or whatever so
0: great yeah. Well, uh, congratulations on the concerto. I saw it on uh, on Saturday evening and just enjoyed it. And uh, I want to thank you again for taking a little bit of your time today. I know you've got a busy schedule. Uh, Stephen Goss, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Jesse. Right. <laughs>